episode 16, which is called Humanity versus the Economy, which is a phrase I learned on another podcast. So let's dig in. I typically conceptualize and schedule these podcast episodes weeks or even a month or more in advance. Today's topic has been on the calendar since the middle of August. And even before last week, I'd outlined the episode and I knew I wanted to talk about the conversation and issues swirling around the terms quiet quitting, quiet firing, and loud retaining. But honestly, I was feeling kind of meh about the episode. And then just this week, I was given a few gifts. And as a result, I think this episode is way better. Each gift was a glimpse into someone else's mind. First, I found two new podcasts I absolutely adore. One is called Phronesis, and it's the official podcast of the International Leadership Association. The episode that hooked me was an interview with Jill Arnsdorf, as she talked about how she transitioned from teaching leadership and chairing a Department of Leadership Studies into being a provost charged with living out the theories and practices she'd been teaching. Jill is smart and funny and humble, and I highly recommend the episode, especially for women who advance in leadership roles within a single institution. The second podcast is called The Agile Academic. It's hosted by Rebecca Pope Ruark, and it's a podcast about faculty vitality. I binged half a dozen episodes in one day. I listened nearly nonstop while I was driving, washing the dishes, walking the dogs, and OMG, I'm in love with Rebecca's work. At the height of her productivity as a faculty member, Rebecca was diagnosed with burnout, and she documents how she came to terms with the diagnosis and what she did about it in her new book, which is called Unraveling Faculty Burnout, and it's coming to bookshelves near you on September 20th. I will drop a link to the book and to her podcast in the show notes. In an episode from 2021, Rebecca talks with Michelle Dion Thompson, and Michelle gave me the title for today's episode, Humanity versus the Economy. Since they were talking in 2021, the conversation was steeped in the crises we were all facing as we were living and sustaining others through the pandemic. But that phrase, humanity versus the economy, is also, I realized, at the heart of our current conversations about both burnout and about quiet quitting. And then I started to think about how those could be linked. This week, I also got the gift of talking to an actual live person, not just listening to their voices on podcasts. Over coffee with a philosopher friend of mine, we shared stories about memorable cups of coffee we've had. And I told him the story of the best cappuccino I've ever had, which was at a small hole-in-the-wall cafe somewhere in Manhattan. I don't remember where, and so I'll never find it again. But the cafe was full of regulars, and the vibe was The vibe was just right, and the coffee was handcrafted, and oh my God, it was so good. Anyway, that conversation turned into a conversation about how when business owners stay close to their businesses, whether that's the product or the services or their employees and the customers, then there's purpose and connection in the business, and that purpose and connection kind of creates some vitality. And all of that starts to get lost as the owner or CEO builds in layers of distance between themselves and whatever the business is. 
So I had all of this swirling in my head as I was working out to an 80s playlist featuring Janet Jackson and Madonna. And honestly, I think it was something about the girl boss pop vibe that opened a little window in my brain. All these conversations, quiet quitting, quiet firing, burnout, purpose, vitality, small businesses, all of it are actually at their heart about the despair of alienation. I don't know why I had to sweat and get my heart rate up to remember my marks, but there it is. It is 2022 and many of us are feeling deeply alienated from our labor. And what's the solution to alienation? It's connection. So here's today's pretty rambly and super unpolished thesis statement. Quiet quitting and burnout, which are two ways employees are responding to the contemporary workplace, are both one outcome among many of people being alienated from their labor. In higher ed, the employee model has long been the committed faculty member, typically male, who labors in his vocation and devotes his entire life and whole being to his vocation, while his domestic needs are tended to by women at home. Over time, women and folks of traditionally and currently excluded groups entered the professoriate, which meant more professors as laborers had additional external responsibilities, raising children, caring for aging parents, tending to extended family needs, and maintaining the home. It is perhaps not coincidental that requirements for service have also been increasing as the professoriate has shifted, so that now being a professor requires work that might be adjacent to your vacation, Work like attending meetings, serving on committees, volunteering at weekend events, supporting admissions, and participating in fundraising. All of this work is important, and it all needs to be done. But if it is systematically added to people's workloads, and it isn't connected to people's purpose, then it's easy to see how alienation and disengagement become a widespread problem. On top of all this, we know that some folks on campus, even those who feel called by the vocation of teaching and contributing to their disciplines, have the additional genuine labor of managing. Some managers oversee processes while some oversee people. For those of us who manage people, we bear responsibility for the systemic accretion of the purposeless work I described above. If for no other reason, then we probably uphold the system out of habit, right? I mean, we do all the work because that's what we've always done. So if you want to support your people, you have to break the habits that uphold systemic accretion of purposeless work. Those folks on your team who are establishing boundaries, who look like they're quiet quitting, but aren't, are already breaking this habit simply by saying no. If you value your people, their well-being, their ability to stay in this job and to thrive, to teach and mentor and guide students who will eventually become alums and the greatest champions of your institution, you have to support your team's efforts to break the habit of saying yes to the systemic accretion. To do this, you have to prioritize or privilege or even hold sacred the work that is someone's purpose. Help them connect their purpose to their labor. If you're a leader and you're worried about quiet quitting and burnout on your campus, your primary focus should be reconnecting people's purpose to their work. Okay, so if you're out of time, that's today's episode in a nutshell. But hey, if you have like 25 more minutes, stick around and I will unpack this a little bit. Okay, let me start with the basics and get our terms clear in general. 
And then I'll explore how these terms show up in higher ed, because I think it's a little bit different than the ways we see them showing up in at least news reports of industry, private industry. And then finally, I will suggest two things you can do in your leadership practice to help folks move from alienation to connection. Okay, so definitions. Let's start with quiet quitting. It's a new term, but it has a history, and it gets used to refer to slightly different things. One thing I've learned from my reading is that the term itself didn't even really register on our collective consciousness, at least as our collective consciousness is measured by Google searches, until August of 2022, so like a month ago. And then the searches spiked high and hard. Everyone was looking it up. Everyone wanted to know what the hell it was. So what is it? Well, sometimes it's defined as employees calling it in, people who do the bare minimum to get by and still collect a paycheck. Other times, it's defined as employees setting healthy work boundaries, giving their all while they're at work, right? They're all in, and then ending their work day by stopping working. So I don't really like that first definition because calling it in is already a useful phrase with a particular meaning. And when I look around, I don't see a sudden onslaught of folks calling it in. I think in general, folks in higher ed come to work and and do the work, like we really love the work. On the other hand, I really like the second definition, where people set healthy boundaries and live their lives outside of work as private citizens, not as employees. I especially like it because I do see this all around me, and I see it around me as a new phenomenon. And I think a lot of employers are kind of freaking out about it, which is an indication of how systemic it is, right? How, how much employers expect people to be available 24-7 and how much employers are relying on free labor to keep their businesses moving. So shout out to my philosopher friend. Consider this from Elizabeth Anderson's book, Private Government, which is something we talked about over coffee. Here's what she has to say. In many workplaces, employers minutely regulate workers' speech, clothing, and manners, leaving them with little privacy and few other rights. And employers often extend their authority to workers' off-duty lives. Workers can be fired for their political speech, recreational activities, diet, and almost anything else employers care to govern. I'm going to set aside the second part of Anderson's statement, which is the issue of what we can be fired for, especially since those of us working in at-will states can be fired for quite literally no reason at all. But the first part of the statement is interesting because even though our clothing, speech, and manners might be governed at work, there is one work-related right we've been fighting for as human workers pretty successfully since the Industrial Revolution, and that is the right to limit the number of hours we work. There's a long history of people fighting for the rights to their time and humanity as employees. I'm not a scholar of labor law. I'm not going to go into this, but it's why we have a law about the 40-hour work week, although even that's relatively new. It was passed in 1940. In the U.S., labor unions have long fought to protect employees from exploitation, including inhumane expectations for long working hours. In Europe, and I think especially in the U.K., workers have protested excessive work requirements through a concept called work to rule, which is essentially employees following official working rules and hours exactly, which ironically tends to lead to reduced output and efficiency. What I love about the work to rule concept is that it shines a spotlight on systems that are broken. If we follow the rules and policies and work within our expected time frame, efficiency and productivity are actually reduced. What does that tell us about how our work lives are designed? Anyway, all of this reminds us, as does Marx, 
that workers and their bosses live out these tensions between whose time has what value, how much an employer can demand from an employee, and what kind of power a worker can exercise in the workplace. These tensions sometimes surface in a part of the conversation about quiet quitting, when the focus shifts from the employee's quiet quitting to the employer's quiet firing. According to Bonnie Dilber, quiet firing is when an employer does the bare minimum to keep their employees. No support, no development, no growth, no rewards. And women, especially women of color, are particularly susceptible to quiet firing. So basically, quiet firing is when your boss nudges you out the door by decisions and actions that are designed. They're not accidental. They are designed to leave you unengaged and unmotivated. So this conversation surrounds us these days. It's in industry reports the popular press, news headlines, even higher ed periodicals. And I've linked to a bunch of those in the show notes if you want to do some more reading. The problems of quiet quitting and burnout and quiet firing are pervasive. And, and you know, I have to talk about these stories for a minute. These stories are narratives in search of a villain. Either employees are lazy malingerers who are not committed to their workplaces, or employers are heartless bastards who don't care about folks at work. And yes, I just swore, but also that was a shout out. And so just for fun, I'm going to drop a link to the heartless bastards in the show notes just for kicks. Anyway, I think the context for this conversation in higher ed, though, is a little bit different. As with so much nonprofit work, most of us who work in higher ed choose it for its mission and purpose. And especially for faculty, labor is inextricably bound up with our identity. When we feel alienated from our labor in higher ed, it can be experienced as a deep, gut-wrenching loss. And to hear more about this, please listen to Rebecca Pope Ruark's podcast. I cannot wait for her book, honestly. I think it's going to be really good. Anyway, there's some history behind this connection, right, between faculty, labor, and identity and vocation. It used to be that becoming a professor was kind of like becoming a pastor or a doctor. It was your life. It was your calling. And you devoted all your waking hours to your vocation. I mean, especially if you're like the small town doctor, right? And you could do this because someone, usually a woman, was tending to your domestic needs at home while you were devoting yourself to your work. And your work was your way of life. And I'm betting that many of us old-fashioned types fell in love with the idea of being a professor precisely because of its appeal as a lifestyle, a way to live a life of the mind, regularly reading books, conducting research, discovering ideas or new species or new planetary objects, all while engaging in big, challenging ideas and shaping curious young adults to be thoughtful, ethical citizens. Many of us who became professors had amazing experiences with our own college professors, maybe dinners at their house or philosophical chats over late night beer and pizza. Personally, I remember a walk through the zoo while discussing my future and also taking a motorcycle ride into the mountains to sit by a stream and reflect. These were both particularly powerful conversations and moments I shared with faculty. I think about the best creative writing instructor I ever had, who spent lots of time listening to us. She listened to us talk about our personal lives, and she helped us shape those experiences into vignettes or poems that carried, you know, good meaning. She didn't work 40 hours a week. She couldn't have. And she may not even have wanted to, because the ideal is a life. A life that integrates curiosity and intellectual stimulation and time with students and time to write and time to create. It's not a job. It's a way of being in the world. And oh my God, it is beautiful. And that beautiful vision, that glorious myth persisted 
even as the professoriate changed. As women and other traditionally and still marginalized groups became professors, which meant that suddenly professors might no longer have wives at home tending to the family's domestic needs because the professors were themselves people with responsibilities for children, aging parents, and extended families. On top of that, I think in the last century, the job itself has changed, as shared governance in particular has increased the number and types of committees required to run a campus, as expectations for disciplinary expertise have risen and continue to rise, and as service expectations have grown to include things like advising students, sponsoring student organizations, hosting co-curricular events, supporting admissions, and even participating in fundraising. I'm guessing all of those work requirements were quote-unquote added on, in part because higher ed as an industry is steeped in the historical expectation that if you're a faculty member, your job is your calling, and you should be working in and living your vocation all the time. The possibility of tenure shrinking as that possibility is ideally exists to help offset that imbalance. Yes, we're going to ask a lot of you as you devote your life to the institution, but you'll have lifetime job security at a place you love. Isn't that a great trade-off? So there are some problems here, right? The first is the reliability and reward of tenure. Now, I know tenure is a wonderful thing for some folks. I have friends and colleagues around the country who are devoted to their institutions and their students. They are thriving in the classroom and they're able to manage the additional responsibilities that come with their tenured faculty role. So I see you, I see people who honestly love their work and enjoy their career and are flourishing as tenured faculty. So clearly sometimes this set of expectations works. Overall though, I think it's increasingly problematic and I think increasingly it just doesn't work for more and more people. Some folks no longer see tenure as a payoff. I mentioned last week the article in the Chronicle of Higher Ed where Elizabeth Haswell mentioned that tenure brings a kind of Stockholm syndrome. We also read in the news that folks with tenure are still losing their jobs through restructuring or a misplaced tweet or other means. And not even all institutions offer tenure. And none of this even begins to address the inequities designed into the tenure and promotion process, starting with who gets accepted into and supported through a doctoral program, and then who gets hired, who gets funded, who wins grants, who suffers from biased teaching evaluations, and so on. The other problem, tenure aside, is the way, though, that work gets added on. And I've come to think of this as systemic accretion. We get asked to do small things that individually are totally manageable, and sometimes they're even exciting. And we're all super smart, and we do this work because we love it, and we're super competent, and we get excited, and so we're like, yes, I will do that, and we mean it. And then not only do those expectations never go away, they accrete over time. And soon we're cramming extra meetings into our calendars, we're working over lunch, we're skipping our morning exercise or meditation. We're taking work home and we're doing it after the rest of the family goes to bed because all of our meetings during the day prevented us from finishing our actual tasks. Another challenge, I think, and I'm arguing here from inference, is that this expectation that you have a vocational devotion to your institution is, I think, naturally and probably thoughtlessly extended to everybody working on a college campus, whether they're faculty or not. And for folks accustomed to working in industry, and I'm thinking particularly of staff who might work in dining or facilities or public safety, it seems natural that they would expect to put in their 40 hours and leave work behind when they go home. But increasingly, I suspect that's not true. So 
All of this leads me to believe that higher ed was fertile ground for this crisis of burnout. One conclusion that I'm drawing is that as a sector, we've come to rely on folks working increasing numbers of hours on increasing kinds of tasks, which necessarily are taking folks further and further from their purpose. And I can totally see how this could have happened. Any of the work we do in individual parts or in small doses is fine, right? All that stuff that it creates, each little piece of it is fine. Volunteering once a year to help students over move-in weekend is awesome. And showing up at a water station for a running race, wearing your university gear and cheering on the runners, man, that's fun. Attending faculty meetings and being part of the representative voice for Faculty Matters is actually really important. Being a good departmental citizen, that matters. These are all fantastic opportunities. There are ways we can live our lives connected to our work, our institutions, and our students. It's not any one of these that's the problem. It's the constant, steady accretion of all of them. If you love to teach and you love the life of the mind and you thrive in the classroom when literally trillions of neurons are firing simultaneously and you can feel the electricity in the air, then you are most energized quite literally when your labor and your purpose are connected. But I suspect it's the years long accretion of all the purposeless work that is leading to burnout. This also makes me think there's kind of a weird way that higher ed has contributed to burnout and this conversation via the idea of quiet firing. So let's say you get hired as a faculty member and literally your job is to teach, to deepen your disciplinary expertise, and to support governance through service. If that's your job, then literally everything you get asked to do that is not one of those three things is a sort of quiet firing. It's the accretion of assignments that don't help you advance, that prevent you from doing your research, that make it harder for you to get promoted, that cumulatively block your vitality. I hadn't really had that thought before this last week, but I'll be noodling on that one for a while. Anyway, from the reading I've been doing about quiet quitting over the last weeks and months, the one phrase I've come to love most is the antidote to quiet quitting and the opposite of quiet firing. It's called loud retaining. I love this phrase for several reasons. First, it puts the onus for engagement where it belongs, which is on the institution. Second, I love it because it acknowledges that retention is an activity that makes itself known. It's not accidental. And third, because it puts the value in the right place, on the humans at work. Oh, I guess and there's even a fourth reason, which I love even more now that I'm thinking about this vis-a-vis Marx. And this comes from Anthony DiMaggio, who writes this in Salon. Quiet quitting is understandable, but it won't save us from predatory capitalism, right? Like, it's the system that we need to fix. The people who are burning out, the people who are quietly quitting, are simply showing us that the system is broken. I'm not alone in thinking this. Consider this excerpt from a piece in The Chronicle written by Jonathan Malesic and called, Are We Really Burning Out? And yeah, I've linked to this in the show notes too. Anyway, here's the extended quote. If a college wanted to combat burnout, what would it do? I sometimes imagine this hypothetical college calling a radically honest all-campus meeting at which everyone acknowledges that the institution's whole way of operating was harming everyone involved. Everyone would own up to playing a role in a dreary reality, how the students and faculty and staff and administrators were causing each other to burn out, but no one could admit that something was wrong. And everyone felt forced to work hard to live up to some impossible ideal. 
I want to believe that a college or any organization could begin building a whole new way of working once its members recognized that everyone was in this predicament together. They might then realize that even though they all feel powerless, together they are the college. And for that reason, they can remake it. I think that's amazing. And I get all dreamy-eyed about the idea of rebuilding a college's culture in a way that kicks alienation to the curb and instead supports every single employee's desire and human need and human right to feel purposeful in their work. So I don't know, like I've been thinking about this all week and maybe there's a book or a research project or perhaps a fantasy novel project in there somewhere. I don't know. But for today, because I want to be practical, let me propose two things you can do to build connections between people's work, the labor that they do on behalf of your campus, and their purpose. Okay, I wrote that and then I was like, actually, there are three things because the first thing you have to do is build trust. So if you're missing trust on your team, go back and listen to episode 15 for some advice about actions you can take to build it. But let's assume that you've got a great, healthy culture with deep trust. So I'm going to go forward on the assumption that you're working from a place of trust and goodwill. So the first thing I want you to do is untangle the purposeless from the purposeful. And you can do this with your colleagues one by one. Or you could probably have a little workshop if you wanted. That might actually be kind of fun. But you're going to sit down with your colleagues and you're going to pull apart their calendars. You have to diagnose the problem. You have to understand what's purposeless. What is literally on their plate that belongs in the purposeless pile? So if you've got folks who are feeling overworked, have them make a list of everything they need to do. Teaching, service, research, grant writing, advising, assessment reports, volunteering, mentoring junior colleagues, supervising student workers, all of it. Whatever their role, have them list everything they're expected to accomplish. Then sit down with that list alongside a calendar for the year and map it out. Map out the duration of each big project. Look at the due dates for assignments. Look at times when other people are expecting your colleague to deliver something that's complete. Look at when events are happening and look at what those kind of intermediate timing deadlines are for, to make that event happen. Look at everything. Look at all the projects. Then add in all the meetings, the all-campus meetings the staff meetings, the department meetings, the association meetings, all of them. If you're working with faculty, add in class time, add in office hours, add in advising periods, grading and assessment time throughout the semester. Like literally, for example, make sure that at midterms, your faculty have set aside time in their calendar when they can assess their students' work. And I don't mean from 8 to 11 at night. Build it into their calendar. Add in the seasonal breaks, add in the times folks won't be teaching, add in times people will be at conferences, all of their scheduled committee meetings. Literally get all of it out on a calendar. Look at the whole semester, or if you can, if you have the time, look at the whole year. Take a good, hard look at this. I am advocating for this, even though I think it's a really atypical practice, because I have done this and it has saved me. I can also tell you, it hurts. So if you've been listening to the podcast for a while, you know the story of what happened when I looked at my calendar this way in January of this year. What I saw stopped me in my tracks. But the only way I could solve that problem was to see its full scope. So get it all out there. Get it all out. And then once you do, start to whittle it down. And your goal in whittling it down is to get rid of as much of the purposeless work as you possibly can. You won't be able to get rid of all of it 
Unless you're super magical, in which case, oh, I bow to your awesomeness and also could you share your secrets? But if you're human like the rest of us, this will be a work in progress. If your colleague is used to saying yes to everything, if your colleague has bought into systemic accretion, then helping them choose what to say no to can be especially hard. Make it easier by constantly returning to the person's purpose. Let them use their purpose as their guiding principle and give them autonomy in this. As you help your colleagues rebuild connection to their purpose, I want you to keep three things in mind. And these are kind of managerial things, right? So I'm, so I'm making the assumption that you're doing this work with people that you have some kind of supervisory role over. And so from that perspective, as their manager slash supervisor slash leader, I want you to think about these three things. I want you to think about the person's future, not just what they want to accomplish this year, but where they hope their purpose will lead them in their career, right? Have the long view in mind. Have the long view in mind because if you're leading someone, their growth and professional development is quite literally your responsibility. I also want you to have in mind your relationship with this person. You're doing this not only because you supervise them, but because you care about them. Let them see that. And also, if you're supervising someone, (laughs) I personally believe it is literally your job to care about them. And then third, I want you to think about how important communication is. You're doing this work together, but you're having a conversation, and it's one you're going to revisit several times or it won't work. As you untangle the person's calendar, you have to commit to shared accountability. You have to commit to trusting each other. You have to commit to talking about what's working and not working as you move forward, and you have to revisit it over time. Okay, so those three things in mind, right? Like their future, your relationship, and clear communication. With those three things in mind, you're going to move forward focusing on your colleague's purpose, putting that purpose at the front and center of everything, and you're going to jump in, you're going to look at this list, and you're going to ask the really hard questions, such as, What is truly essential? What is motivating and purposeful to me? What is, I love this phrase, it comes from Jesse Ventura, what is nice but not necessary? I actually hate the way he asks that question, but I find that a super useful question. Separate everything you can into these categories so that at the very least you have a sense of quantity, how much of the person's work that they're currently doing is honestly connected to their purpose. And then in addition to purpose, ask about urgency, right? Because this has to be practical too. What's on fire? If something's on fire, but it's not connected to your purpose, you're probably still not going to walk away from it, right? So know what's on fire, know what's urgent, know what's important, but not urgent, not time sensitive. And then ask, how long can it wait? What can you push out? What can you postpone? What in the person's workload is soul crushing? Can that thing be eliminated or postponed? Let me ask again that first part. Can that thing be eliminated? Or could it be reassigned to someone who would actually enjoy it? Ask what can be delegated? What can be systematized? What meetings can be canceled or shortened or held less frequently or even wholly reimagined? And for more on making meetings matter, have a listen to episode 14, where I offer some strategies to make meetings both more enjoyable and more purposeful. Okay, so throughout this conversation, as you're going through this, use all your people skills and stay attuned to how the other person is responding. Let them be your guide as you listen to them. Listen to their vocal register, their tone of voice. Pay attention to their body language. This might be stressful and uncomfortable. It might feel awkward. They might be afraid to say no. People get punished for saying no all the time, right? So this can be a scary thing to do. 
but help them cut through the noise of the busyness and give an honest assessment of the value of everything on the plate, the value to them and also the value to the institution. Be guided by the person's priorities and preferences and coach them to think about their purpose in terms of their professional success, in terms of the quality of their life as they contemplate how to reorganize their workload and how they can take control over their contributions, right? Connect them to their labor. Reworking calendars this way is hard and it's slow, but it is so worth doing. I have done it myself twice this year and both times I have found it to be deeply life-affirming. I also know from my personal practice that you have to revisit this. It's a work in progress. I'm going to recommend you check in with folks maybe even once a month to see how the new plan is going. Revise as needed. Okay, so that brings us to the second thing I want you to do. So you've done this hard work of helping people untangle their calendars so they can distinguish the purposeless from the purposeful and then rebuild their work days for as much purpose as possible, even though it won't be 100%. Although that really, keep that as your goal, right? Aim high. So you've done that. Now I want you to imagine you're in a place where everyone on your team has adjusted their calendars. Everyone on your team is rebuilding their connections to their purpose. It's messy. It's new. It might be confusing. People are trying to change their habits, and changing habits is hard. And so this is not an overnight or a quick cure. And your team is now doing something different than everyone else. All right, so if this is a cultural change at your institution, your second responsibility as a leader is to be an advocate. You must publicly advocate for this change. You probably need to advocate for it privately too, but you have to be an advocate. Because what's going to happen, right? Someone somewhere is going to be unhappy about something. They're not going to like that a project got delayed, or they're not going to like the meeting that got canceled, or they're not going to like the fact that someone stepped away from a committee, or they're not going to like that someone said no, right? Someone somewhere is not going to like this. So help your team succeed in this by leading. Step up and step in to advocate for the well-being of the folks who report to you. And this isn't hard. It's just kind of constant. Right? So you're going to explain what your team is doing and why. You're going to explain how these choices support and enhance campus culture. You're going to talk about how being connected to purpose increases engagement and how increased engagement leads to increased retention. And if you need to, demonstrate that your team is still meeting its top priorities while being attentive to their needs as humans. Be clear, be friendly, be positive, be optimistic. Help people see why encouraging connection to purpose is beneficial. If you lead the way, you'll make it possible for others to follow you. That vision of a campus that gets together and decides to change because they see themselves as a collective, you can actually be part of making that happen. Which actually makes me want to say, Take a moment here. You did all that work with your team and their calendar and their purpose. Do it for yourself too. Set aside a couple hours one day and do it. If you need some guidance or you want a pal to work through it, give me a call. I will help you out. I will sit with you through this. So earlier in the episode, I confessed to not being a scholar of labor law. And here I'm going to confess I'm not an economist. But what I've just described is totally an issue of resources expenditures, operations, exchange, and interaction. It is 100% about the economy of our campuses. 
And I want to be really clear on my position because I've been kind of rambly. In the debate over quiet quitting and burnout, which can be framed as a debate over humanity versus the economy, the economy of our campuses, the humanity of our people, I want us to choose humanity. Because without humanity, there will be no economy. The pandemic forced us into a period of time when to keep the economy, the national, the global economy moving, we made choices that put humans at risk. And I think we're in an analogous situation here. The systemic accretion of work that is leading to burnout puts all of our colleagues and ourselves at risk. As leaders, we bear the responsibility for changing that. And in that context, making calendar adjustments is a pretty small thing, right? And how lovely that such a small thing can help restore meaning and purpose to our colleagues' work lives. Remember, the goal of recalibrating the calendar is not just to say no to stuff. It's to deeply connect people's work to their purpose. It's to reduce the alienation that will lead your folks to burnout. And in turn, people's lives will start to feel more rich and more meaningful. I believe this. I experienced this. So two steps. Help your colleagues reconnect to their purpose through the super practical method of adjusting their work calendar. And then lean into your leadership by supporting and advocating for these changes. I am going to keep mulling over the interplay of the ideas behind quiet quitting, quiet firing, and loud retaining. And I'm guessing I'll come back to them. This is all making me think about one of my favorite books on supervising, which is called The Progress Principle. And it uses research based on real people at work to draw the conclusion that if managers want their teams to feel joy at work, the most important thing they can do is to give their folks consistent feedback on meaningful work. And you can't do just one, right? You can't give feedback, but assign work that doesn't matter. You also can't assign lots of important work and give no feedback. Good managers do both. And when they do, their teams thrive no matter the situation. If you're in a role where you're getting consistent feedback on meaningful work, it seems to me pretty unlikely that you would disengage. And it also seems unlikely that your boss would be quiet firing you. So consistent feedback on meaningful work strikes me as a foundational component of loud retaining. We're human beings and we love working in our purpose. So yeah, I'm going to be thinking about this one for a while. Thanks for thinking about it with me. As I look ahead this fall, I have my eye on the November elections. And so I want to spend the episodes leading up to November 8th exploring the interrelated topics of difficult conversations and democracy, and look at topics like a university's role in educating citizens who can disagree and dissent, the role of disagreement and academic freedom for faculty and staff and students on a college campus, And a question I've been obsessed with since the 2016 election season, which is, what do women leaders on college campuses believe their role is in educating for democracy? I'm still pulling my ideas together, so if there's a question on your mind or a topic you'd like to hear more about or a guest you'd like to hear from, drop me a line and let me know. (laughs) 
Meanwhile, thank you so much for joining me for this week's episode of The Uplift, the podcast dedicated to elevating and amplifying women's leadership in higher education. Take a moment to follow. You can find me over on Apple Podcasts or Overcast or Spotify, wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. You can also find all previous episodes with transcript, show notes, and links at my website, www.theclariogroup.com. And hey, I see you with your phone open. Come connect with me on social. You can follow the Clario Group on LinkedIn or Facebook. You can also just follow me and you'll see all the Clario Group content. And once you've followed, please drop me a DM to say hi. I'd like to know you're there. All right, that's it. I will see you next week, same time, same place for the next episode of The Uplift. Bye for now. Okay, so this episode is feeling a little bit like a Lord of the Rings movie with um, all the endings, but I just have to tell you one more thing. So my kiddo, who is 16 and totally into political theory and loves nothing more than arguing Nietzsche with philosophers, asked me what today's episode was about. And I was kind of like, well, it's about this and it's about that. And then I was working out to Janet Jackson and Madonna and I realized Marks. It was like I needed the girl boss vibes of pop queens in the 80s to remind me about labor and alienation. And she looked at me and she said, Mom, that is so 9 to 5 by Dolly Parton of you. <laughs> okay, thanks. I'm done now. Bye. <laughs>